Well, back to this morning. We, we are going to be in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to begin. If you'd like, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Uh, next week we'll be uh, taking a little break from Acts because Matt Johnson will be in town. But then the following weeks we'll have four or five weeks straight, straight and we're going to cover a bunch of ground. I was trying to um, think this morning how I could pull you all into the, the ethos and the pathos, the emotion and the passion of Acts chapter 12. Uh, I was trying to consider how do we extract our minds from, from this world and pull ourselves back into what was going on in the book of Acts so that we could appreciate it. Because really, you have to understand, when you're in Acts, to read any narrative in Acts, to study any portion of Acts, without looking at it on the grand scale that this is God laying out for His people church history and wanting to teach His people so they can be strengthened how to stand in the days ahead, you miss the point of Acts. Everything in Acts must be, must be constructed in our minds under the framework, this is God laying out the first 30 years of church history. Acts 2 starts church history, Acts covers about 30 years. So anything read in Acts isn't understand, understood in the, in the framework of local churches being planted and established and leaders being raised up and the gospel going forth and more churches being established. You miss the point of Acts. Everything in Acts is about the local church. All of it. So I said, how do I pull you into Acts 12, the significance of this portion? And we're going to look at it all today. I wanted to pull in a modern day illustration and there's going to be holes in my illustration so those of you that like to pick apart illustrations just keep that to yourself. Um, but I think the illustration will be illustrative for what was going on for this local church in Jerusalem. Remember, the first church ever planted was the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. They're being revisited again now in Acts chapter 12. We've been looking at Gentile churches like the church in Antioch and the gospel going forth to Gentiles. Now Luke's bringing us back and saying, Meanwhile, let me tell you what was going on still in Jerusalem. There was great danger. So let me try and bring an illustration that might pull it in right here this morning if this was going on. Just, just let me take your mind somewhere. Let's imagine the years, say, 2030. To be a true Christian in America is no longer safe. It is not yet illegal. However, the president and our vice president, along with most of the cabinet, are heavily influenced by the immoral liberal agenda of our day. I know that's hard to imagine, <laughs> getting to that point. In fact, and all of the things I'm bringing up, by the way, are going to parallel what's going to come up in Acts 12. In fact, to keep votes and to gain the approval of the people, the government is doing more and more to cater to the immoral, liberal agenda. So they're finding more and more ways to oppose that which the immoral, liberal agenda in our country opposes. So they pass a policy that gives the rights to each governor of their state to carry out whatever they deem necessary to stop the hate speech of Christians in their particular state. So delegated authority is given to the governor to decide how they want to silence and muffle Christians. In our passage, it will be Caesar who gives authority to King Herod. Here, we'll just say it's given to the governors of each state. So the governor of Florida decides that he wants to make a statement. He wants to silence some Christians and let people know that 
that you will not be able to stand for Christ and speak for Him and have a church gathering at rest and at ease anymore. We're going to come for you. And so what he does is he tries to send out a search team, just like we'll see in our passage today, and locate the most conservative evangelical churches, the ones that those in society might say, those are the most narrow, the most biblical, they're the most committed to everything the Bible said, and they're the most offensive to me. So let's say they find GIBC, as the governor of Florida says, you know what, Grace Emanuel Bible Church. And they're known as conservative. In fact, there's a, a history there that goes back to a guy that's bothered us for a long time named John MacArthur and Jerry Ragg, who was his assistant. He's there. And then they've got some guys that have written some books that are, that are influential. They have a seminary there and they train men and send them out to other churches. Yeah, that'd be a good church to target. So they do some research and find that there's a couple notable people they want to pursue. And let's envision that they pick out one of our associate pastors here first. The governor says, go get Matt Waymire. Go get Todd Murray. Go get Jay Pitts. Go get Darren. Whoever. We want him. He's known. People know him. And we'd like to make a statement. Let's say it's Matt. They capture him. And then the governor says, you know what? We're going to make a public statement. We're going to make him a spectacle so that all know the danger of remaining Christian. And pardon me for the graphic nature of this, but this is exactly what happens to James in our passage today. Uh, they decapitate him as a public statement by the sword so that everybody knows you stand for Christ, there will be a cost. What happens after that is we pick up our phones and we turn on the news and there's a, there's a public outcry of approval. Everyone is excited about the prospect that someone's finally silencing the Christians, which is what happens in our passage. And the governor says, this is great. My polls are skyrocketing. I'm gaining audience approval. I need to do this again, which is exactly what King Herod does. And he says, you know what? Since we got one of the associate pastors, let's go get the main guy. Let's go get Jerry Rag. And they come take Jerry and they put him in prison. And in seven days, they are going to execute him publicly as well as another statement so that all would know the danger of being a Christian. Now, I bring that to you this morning because already you can appreciate what starts to arise in your heart, can't you? What, what arises in the heart of even a godly Christian when, when there is a political agenda that is now legalizing the ability to take out leaders of what we would say healthy churches? What happens in your heart? What, what could come up in your heart at its worst? Fear. Fear of what? You know, fear of Or even if you are saved, will I stand? How will I do this? How will I make it? Will I be able? Is God in control? 
Don't we get fearful when there's political agendas? I mean, look at every time a liberal a person is particularly going to be put in office that really seems to hate Christianity. The, the Christian world rises up in this phobia and this fear as if God's promises are going to be thwarted by someone in office, right? What could happen in our hearts if all of a sudden a couple of our leaders were executed? Who's going to teach us? Who's going to shepherd us? What's going to happen to the church? Right? Did those come up in your heart? Can you, can you feel? Imagine that hitting Grace Emmanuel, beloved. You have to appreciate Acts 12 and what's happening to the church in Jerusalem. This is exactly what they're experiencing in reality. We would probably gather here and we would pray. We would come together and minister to one another. And we'd look to God's promises that He's given to His church. We'd look to His promises of His sovereignty. But we would be vulnerable to say, are you really in control? Is, is, this, is this all part of your plan? Is this how it's supposed to be? What if they eradicate and take out all the leaders of the church? What will happen to your church? Can you guys feel that? I mean, if you're honest, can you sense that it disrupts our comfort, doesn't it? Which is exactly what Satan would want, right? He wants persecution to disrupt the faith of those that are faithful and make them question God's plan. What would be potential promises that we'd be vulnerable to not believe? God's not sovereign. sovereign. He's not in control. Evil's winning. What else? How about about the church? I mean, now you've got a political agenda, delegated authority from the Emperor Caesar, which we're going to see down to King Herod. King Herod here is the grandson of the great King Herod. What would be the potential promises that we'd be vulnerable to not believe about the church? Yeah. We can start to wonder, God, is your promise this true? I mean, how are we going to have freedom to worship? Where are we going to worship? What are we going to do? What's going to happen to your church? What will happen to my faith? What happens if I don't have shepherds anymore? What if they're all killed? All of these things come up in our hearts. And I, and I bring that to bear uh, for us to consider this morning because when you're studying the book of Acts, you have to ask the question, why did Luke include these, these details this way at this point in the narrative for the people of God for all time? These were included in this way because this narrative is meant to teach us that no matter what authority rages against God's people, nothing will stop God's promises to build and bless His church. In fact, think about the book of Acts for a second. Think about Acts. There's a refrain that's been happening in Acts. We've seen a threat to the church, and then we've seen God resolve or neutralize the threat, and the church marches on. We've seen the Sanhedrin come against the church, the Jews. And yet, even when there is whipping and lashing of the apostles, the church marches on, God strengthens His people. We've seen Ananias and Sapphira be an internal threat to the church. God kills the internal threat to the church. Souls become saved because they don't want to be hypocrites and they come and run to be made ready with Christ. God uses difficulty to bring about more fruit in the church. We have Simon the sorcerer come about in Acts 8 as the first threat to the church in Samaria. He gets neutralized. The church is strengthened. We have Stephen who's killed the first Christian martyr, Acts 6, 4-8, 4. What does God do? 
He is killed and God spreads the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth by dispersing a 20,000 member church under persecution. God keeps building His church. So you see this refrain. A threat comes to the church. God comes in and acts uniquely. Sometimes people die. Sometimes they don't. But the church marches on. One threat has not yet come to the church though. And this is the first time we see it. An imperial threat, a political threat, a government threat. Now we have the government noticing Christians and being okay with them being eradicated. This is a new concern for the church. Sure, the the Jews could have a mob and take some of us out, and the angry pagans could take some of us out. But if the government issues a decree that gives them the ability to eradicate us, that's a new set of fears. I think Acts 12 is an illustration of Psalm 2. If you just turn there really quick. Notice Psalm 2. This is a good reminder for us. This is a passage you need to come back to when your heart starts to fear and wonder if the church is going to march on even if our country loses all its religious freedom. I love Psalm 2. Acts 12 and Psalm 2, such a connection here. Notice Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So here you have kings and authorities and rulers and the the biggest, most authoritative people on planet earth that are mortals. They come against the Lord and His anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our passage, against the church. They say, let us tear down their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He, here is God's response when nations and authorities and rulers rage against Him. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in anger and terrify them in fury. And He goes on to rebuke them. Beloved, laughs there doesn't mean God's sitting up there like some some angry dictator. Laughing is an expression to show the absence of fear, the presence of total control. God's not up in heaven concerned and fretting and pacing through the clouds, wondering if governments and rulers, authorities come against His plan, that it's not going to work. When the nations rage, God laughs. Acts 12 is the nations raging against God's church and it is to show God's people that He laughs when they come against Him. Nothing will stop His plan for His church. Now go to Acts 12 with that in mind. Nothing will stop God's plan for the church to reach the nations through the church. Everything happens through His people. In fact, notice Luke brings to the surface right in this passage that everything here is about the threat to which God has ordained to build and bless His church. Notice 12.1. And now about the time, this time, what time? The time just after there was a famine and a plague and the church in Antioch is planted and Samaria and all the surrounding areas are having lots of difficulty. King Herod's in office and it brings us back and says, let's talk about what's going on at another place over by Jerusalem. Now about the time, this time, Herod the king laid hands on some, notice, who belonged to the church. What is under attack is a local church because Satan knows he must stomp out local churches because they are the means God has promised to build and bless. And then verse 5, the church responds. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was made fervently by the church of God. Beloved, everything in this section is about a threat to the church. Here, it's a king. 
But I want you to notice the ending before we finish, start the narrative and then walk through it. The, whatever happens between verse 1, verse 1 is, here's a threat to the church from the king who's going to try and kill a bunch of Christians and end the local church in Jerusalem. And then the narrative ends in verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Whatever happens between 1 and 24 in those brackets is what God does to stop and thwart this threat to His church. So here's your outline for this morning for the remainder of our time. We're going to work through all of this narrative. It goes pretty fast now that I think you'll see it in context. Here's our outline. Two scenes that illustrate Two scenes that illustrate when there is a threat to the church, God sits in heaven and laughs. Two scenes that illustrate when there is a threat to His church, God sits in heaven and laughs. And I don't mean mocking laughter, like I said, as a tyrant. I mean He's totally at ease. He's not concerned. He's not fretting. He is utterly in control. And He wants us and the church here to know that His plan is always going to come to pass perfectly. And you say, Pastor, I've read this and James dies in this passage, but Peter lives. That's true. Sometimes God lets His saints die and strengthens the church, and sometimes He rescues them and lives. But either way, as we'll see by the end of this, the church continues to march on, and His promise to build and bless His church continues. Matthew 28, 18 and following, when all authority had been given from every nation to the apostles and to local churches to get the gospel to them, that doesn't change. Matthew 16 does not change that hell cannot prevail against it, and Acts 1.8 does not change that the gospel is going to go forth to all the nations, despite the threats. So, two scenes that illustrate that even when the nations rage against the church, God laughs. First scene, King Herod fails in his attempt to kill multiple leaders in the church. Notice verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king, the grandson of the great King Herod, is who we have here, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Laid hands on some there, beloved, is what I said to you before in my illustration about the governor. It's the idea of a particular planning and associating. So King Herod thought, I need to target those who are influential, and I need to go track them down. And it's not just James that he grabs. He seems to grab a whole group of faithful Christians, but James is the one who we're about to see who gets executed. This is targeted assassination, targeted persecution of faithful Christians, delegated by King Herod himself, who had authority under Caesar. Verse 2, And he had James, the brother of John. By the way, beloved, that is James the Apostle, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Think of how jolting it would have been for the early church. This was the first apostle to die. So Stephen's died. He was killed. He was a layman in the church. Now the first apostle has died. Now they knew Jesus' teaching that Jesus said that all of his followers would follow after him in the sense that they would all suffer and die and be persecuted because of him. But it would have been shocking to see the fullness of this come to pass. And the public nature of it must have been very difficult. Notice 
the brother of John was put to death with a sword. That's language for it was public in nature. It was a spectacle. They used a big, long sword and they would put them out before the people and they would put them as a display and then there would be an executioner that would come and decapitate them before the people so that all would know this was a statement. Well, now you have James, an apostle, who dies. Now, some say right here, why didn't we get a bigger illustration of James? Why didn't James get the press of Stephen? I mean, Stephen got two chapters in Acts 6-4 to 8-4, and we got this whole story of Stephen's life, his courage, the way God used his death. Why don't we get a bigger picture of James? Why does James only get a sentence from Luke? I think the way to answer that is you have to understand that every single narrative has its unique point. The point of Stephen's narrative was to show how Stephen's life and death spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, north and south. This narrative is to show that even when there's an evil, tyrannical, wicked leader that tries to come against God's people and even takes out some of their leaders, he cannot ultimately win. So the larger point here is showing that wickedness cannot prevail, not as much of a story about how James' death was used. However, Clement of Alexandria in 150, so it would have been 100 years later, had a direct account, it seems, that was passed down of what happened before James died. And I thought this was neat to read. Here's what he says. A story is told of James after he was to be executed that the soldier who led James from the courtroom after witnessing his joyful confession that he had made before the authorities was so deeply affected that he on his part confessed himself a Christian where he was then led out to the execution together with James. And on the way, the soldier asked James to pardon him for having served as a tool of the king. James thought for a little while, turned and said, Peace be with you, and kissed the soldier. And they both were executed together. So that's a story told in church history. All we get is a sentence here from Luke. But we always know that when faithful men go to the grave, God uses their death mightily. And here it seems a soldier was converted, church history tells. But let's go back to our narrative. Notice what happens. The motives in Herod's heart are exposed, beloved. But let me just tell you something. When you read this next verse here, don't ever think that you should nurture selfish ambition in your heart and it's an okay sin to be tolerated. We are about to see that the motive that drove Herod to have further executions and commit more murder was approval from the Jews for his first execution. He so much loved his own personal significance and so much loved the approval that he got from the mob that it fed his ego to such a degree and he swelled with such pride because of it, he went out to kill more Christians. James 3, 13-18 says that selfish ambition and Arrogance in the heart, a personal, a love for personal distinction can lead to every form of sin. Here's the motive of Herod. Verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he got acceptance from the religious elite, a large constituency in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Love that he killed James. And so he said, All right, I need to do that again. I need my poles to stay strong, to use our vernacular. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. During the days of the unleavened bread is we're going into the days of Passover. You're probably wondering, what is he, why would he put unleavened bread? Well, unleavened bread was bread without yeast that did not rise. And what they celebrated at Passover was when, when Jerusalem was the people of, of Israel were taken from Egypt. It was just said they left so quickly they couldn't put yeast in the bread and the bread didn't rise. And so part of Passover was celebrating an unleavened loaf of bread that didn't rise to celebrate the Passover of their, their particular um, uh, being saved from Egyptian captivity way back when. What's being important here for us, what's important for us to understand is Luke setting the stage to say this is all happening during Passover week, which probably means Peter's going to be captive for seven days. So the church would have been aware for the next seven days during this time, Peter's going to be captive and then he'll be executed. So the church would have went into a time of prayer. Now verse 4. When he had seized him, he put him in prison. Now, now notice this. This is one fisherman, guys. It's Peter. It's, I mean, it is true that Peter went for the head of the soldier and got the ear way back when. Maybe that story was one along. But Peter wasn't some big threat to society. He's a fisherman. But look at the amount of soldiers that Herod puts forth to watch him. When he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Four squads of soldiers means four groups of four soldiers. So you got four groups of four soldiers that were on a rotation to deal with this very, very dangerous ex-fisherman. Now you can appreciate for a second the drama that God's bringing forth. Herod from a human dimension is doing everything he can to ensure that he doesn't get embarrassed and nothing happens to him like it happened before. You remember, Herod would have known the story from Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were locked up and then all of a sudden they were set free and the Sanhedrin is talking about how great they are that they had captured them and they're out preaching in the square. And Herod's saying, that's not happening to me. So I'm going to have four groups of four soldiers to watch this guy to prove to everyone that basically I am the authority over people of the church. This God in heaven that people say that we should worship, don't worry about him. Look what I can do. And Luke says, look at all that is going into taking care of keeping this fisherman tucked away. Notice, so Peter was kept in prison. But here's the church, beloved. What is the church doing? James has been killed. Peter's been captured. What is the church doing? Praying. I love it. But prayer for him was being made fervently by who? The church of God. God's people rose up and said, there's one thing we can do in all of this. Pray. We can pray. We can pray for those burdened over the loss of James and we can pray that God would do a miracle to deliver Peter. And if God doesn't deliver Peter, we can still pray and trust that God will use his life for his glory as we know he will. Now Luke gives some more background about the night of the divine breakout that's about to happen. On that very night... Herod was about to bring him forward. So fast forward probably seven days the church has been praying. Now you can appreciate Herod is looking forward to the next day having his lust for blood and personal significance satisfied by killing the great Peter and bringing him before the people as a spectacle. So it would have looked to all the worldly people, here is a victory for Herod. And remember, 
Ananias and Sapphira represent the first internal threat to the church, and God dealt with them so severely, right? He kills them. We can say that this is the first imperial threat to the church, and God's going to make a statement, and as you'll see, He's going to deal with Herod very severely and embarrass him sufficiently. So on the very night, the drama is unfolding. Peter's going to be executed the next day. And then he describes Peter. The, the, the verbal ideas here, even in Luke's giving. Let me give you some more background to set the stage here of how incredible this is. Peter's sleeping. Now, I think about that. Peter's sleeping. <laughs> I mean, you can appreciate Peter's about to die the next day. He's dead. He has no, no vision, no promise. No one's told him that he's going to be cleared. He's assuming this is his last, final night of sleep. What does it take for a man, I was thinking, to be sleeping? Not only sleeping, but sleeping between two soldiers. So he's got soldiers on each side. He's bound with chains. He's got guards in front of him. And he's snoozing. Such a trust in the Lord. He knew God's promises. He knew what his God had said. He knew that his life would be as long as God wanted it to be. He knew that he was immortal until God wanted him to be mortal. Meaning that he will live as long as God wants him to live and then he dies. He knew that God said that he would suffer many things at his hands, at the hands of evil men. And so he went to sleep. I bet you those soldiers are thinking, this guy... We got him chained up. We got him locked away. They know he's innocent. They've got soldiers all around him. And he's just sleeping like a baby. (laughs) I just love it because it also indicates a clean conscience. It just indicates a life that's clean before God. And so all that's going on. And look at the details there. He's between two soldiers. He's locked away. He's snoozing. They're watching over him. Soldiers are around him. And behold, verse 7, my translation would be this. Though wicked man schemes and nations rage, God laughs. laughs. Here comes divine instruments to totally break down the plan of Herod. And an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter in the side. He whacked Peter and said, get up. He says, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird up yourself. Put on your shoes, Peter. Wrap your cloak around you. So there was some type of you saying, hey, this is urgent. This is dangerous. (coughs) Cover yourself and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done. The angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. Now just stop for a second and think about that. You've got lights shining down into a cell and soldiers not even noticing. You've got chains hitting the ground and no one hearing. You've got an angel speaking audibly to Peter and nothing's happening. You've got two soldiers that are standing guard in the gates. And you've got two that are right next to him chained. And no one does anything. This is a miracle. This is God showing up for the church to say nothing happens outside my timing, church. If Peter's going to die, it'll be what I say he's going to die. But it won't be on Herod's timeline. It's on mine. An angel wakes him up, takes him out, and then look at this. They just cruise on past the other two guards. So two were next to him, two were out front. When they pass by... The first and second guard, they came to an iron gate that leads into the city, which, notice this line, which opened for them by itself. You think, what is that line? These gates were massive. It would take multiple soldiers to move these massive iron gates. But when God's doing a miracle, the gate just swung open like it was a gate on a hinge. (laughs) 
Peter thought he was dreaming, you notice. Verse 9, he thought he was seeing a vision. He was in some type of daze. He didn't really know what happened. And he's coming to his senses now. And then notice the gate opens by itself, back down in verse 10, end of 10. And he went out and went along in the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now notice this. This is the message that God was sending to the church, that he is in control. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth the angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. He's saying all will know now and all the church will be strengthened that Herod and his authorities and kings and nations, though they rage, my God is in control. Think of how important that message would have been for the church as each subsequent apostle was killed, as martyrdom came, as Nero came into office and more Christians were killed. They would have said, some may die, some may live, but we know this, our God is on the throne, His church is being built, nothing will stop it. Even when wicked men devise plans, we know that God intervenes where He wants to intervene and nothing's out of His sovereign power. Peter said, go send the message to the masses. God is on the throne, He delivers who He wants, when He wants, not Herod. What a strength to the church. And then, I'm not saying Luke has a lot of humor in the book of Acts, but this is a humorous scene. And when he realized that he had been freed, he went to the house of Mary. Seemingly, we're one of the house churches. Remember, church of Jerusalem was huge, probably 20,000 strong. Persecution breaks out. They spread out. Some of them slowly start to make their way back into Jerusalem. They start gathering in house churches. Pastors and leaders are raised up, and these little small churches are spread out through Jerusalem. This is probably one of them. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, John Mark. We'll see him a lot more in Acts. Where many gathered, and they were praying, probably praying for Peter. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now this, this is amazing. When she recognized Peter's voice, you'd expect her to say, because of her joy, and she knew he was in prison, she immediately opened the door and let him in to keep him from safety. Remember, his face is wrapped up right now. He's probably knocking saying, hey, hey, it's me, Peter, let me in. I just got out of prison. She looks at him, she smiles, waves, and runs away. <laughs> Look! When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she could not contain herself. It's Peter. See ya. And she ran to the rest of the group. I mean, that is funny. She did not open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter was standing at the front of the gate. Meanwhile, Peter's still outside. As we'll see in a moment, he's going to knock again and be like, hey, I'm still out here. Like, let me in. You realize I just had a divine breakout. Soldiers are probably after me. It'd be great to come inside. (laughs) She went, (laughs) scurried away. (laughs) And yet, this young lady had more faith than the rest, which is really sad. And this is a anecdotal here, but the response of those praying shows their weak faith. She has great faith and believes immediately. When she reports back, notice the rest of the group that's praying begin to mock her. Now you would think if they were praying expectantly, trusting the Lord that He would answer prayers, the moment they heard Peter was there, they'd say, I believe, it's Him. But instead, they didn't believe. They had weak faith. Notice. Verse 15, They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting. And they kept saying, It is His angel. So, it's hard to know all that's meant by is His angel. Angel can be word messenger. 
in Greek as well. It is a messenger from Peter, they might be saying. Or maybe they're just mocking her and making fun of her. Or maybe they're saying it's some guardian angel, which is probably highly unlikely. It's pretty supernaturalistic for what probably would have been in their mind. I think the, the biggest issue here is Luke's communicating that they were of weak faith. She had robust faith and believed that God could answer their prayer and believed it was Peter, and they did not, which is really sad. But Peter continued knocking. I'm still here. (laughs) And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. So all those with weak faith were rebuked. Don't you ever feel that sometimes? You pray and you pray and you pray for something and then God answers the prayer and you're like, really? And you're like, wow, I am pathetic. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God starts to answer a prayer and I have such weak faith that I don't even believe He answered the prayer. That's what was going on here. This young girl is a contrast to their weak faith and she has strong faith and yet God is patient with them and brings Peter in and they're amazed and their faith is strengthened. So I guess in that we could say even in our weakest moments of faith, God brings things that are so of Him that we just have to say, forgive me for not believing, I believe more now. So notice, they come knocking, the door open, and he motions to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them, notice the narrative again, Luke's bringing out the power of God. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And he left and went to another place. That's a different James that we'll see later on that he's speaking about there. What is he saying there? Tell them what? Tell the brethren what? Tell them God is in control. Tell them Herod's not ultimately on the throne. Tell them my God delivered us and it wasn't my time to die. And tell them that nothing will stop the plan to build and bless His church. It will march on on God's timing. Now, back to Herod and his wickedness. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as what had become of Peter. You know why, beloved? When you vow to be a soldier, you vow that if a soldier in, in the uh, larger Roman Empire here, you vow to be a soldier. If a soldier es- uh, loses a prisoner and they escape, you're dead. That's your life. So this would have been no small thing for those soldiers who on their watch, Peter had escaped. And you can appreciate in your heart for a moment, you almost feel a sense of compassion. Are you saying that these soldiers who are about to be executed are casualties of a divine miracle? Yeah, they are. And at first we could say, wow, is that unfair? Well, not really, because in their sin and their rebellion, they were God-rejectors. They were part of seeing an innocent man have to stay in chains and was going to pay for any crimes he did not commit. So in one sense, God brought justice to them swiftly. In another sense, you could appreciate the, the irony and the tragedy of being in your unbelief and not repenting of your sin and not coming to Christ and having your life end. It's sad. 19. So Herod does an investigation. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now stop for a moment. That's the end of scene one. And scene two will unfold very quickly. What is the point of scene one, beloved? Let's just back up for a second. Just think about it. There's an imperial threat of a king that has a plan to do everything he can to eradicate the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. God shows up 
and he allows one of them to die and he rescues one and he does it with such divine miracle, with such providence and such sovereignty and such meticulous detail that all of the people could only say that was God that could do that. Only he could accomplish that. How could we ever doubt him? His plan will never be thwarted. He will continue to build and bless and grow his church. In fact, when the narrative ends, notice again at the refrain at the end of the narrative, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and multiply. The whole point of this narrative is no matter what comes against God's people, when they respond in righteous faith, God's word through his church continues to go forth and be multiplied means more people were being saved. That's the end of scene one. So what is scene two? What's the rest of this narrative, the death of Herod? Well, very simply, scene two is this. God sits in heaven and laughs at the nations raging in this way. King Herod's fails in an attempt to not only kill multiple leaders, but the second one is this. When you mock God, God kills those who pursue their own glory and oppose His church. God kills those who pursue their own glory and oppose His church. This is illustrative to how God mocks those that come against Him. You notice the narrative continues. And what's interesting, beloved, in 20-25, to it turns the corner and just focuses on Herod's anger and his rebellion and his hostility. But remember, in the larger context, he's coming off of the heels of his opposing God's people in the church. So this is divine retribution. And what Herod's about to do is he's about to go to another level. Not only do I oppose the church, but I want people to worship me. God says, okay. You want to come against me at that level? I'll make another statement about you, Herod. I will show you that I will not share my glory with another. Notice verse 20. Second scene here. God kills those who pursue their own glory and oppose His church. Now God may not kill every person that opposes His glory, uh, pursues their own glory and opposes His church immediately, but it will always be swiftly. I even think about, just sidebar, about um, Nero, who after this, just 10 years later, starts killing lots of Christians, and then later takes his own life um, because of his own guilt and shame. Always rebellion will ruin the soul. Every person that thinks they're getting away in the slaughtering of God's people always die miserable in their guilt or their shame or death, and they always pay a price that's far greater than they'd ever want to pay. And every sin they committed against Christ's church, they pay for on the last day. No sin goes unpunished against God's people, beloved. Verse 20. Now, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and in one accord they came to him, having won over Blastus, the king of the Chamberlain. King of the Chamberlain is the king of his bedroom, his most trusted person in many ways. The most sensitive area, the king's bedroom, this is the one that watched over it. And so apparently Tyre and Sidon, these these surrounding areas that we'll see in a moment, were receiving food during a food crisis. They won over his most trusted person. Confidant, 21. So on the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took seat in the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. So what's happening here, beloved, is that if you look back at it, um, these, these surrounding cities that he was angry with, seemingly he was giving them food and helping them during this, this great... Um, this great um, time of uh, difficulty, this food shortage, and they were trying to make peace with him, so they come to make peace, and he's about to come before them and present himself as this great, amazing leader who have the, they have the privilege to make peace with him. So 21. On the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, 
took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of God and not of man. So think about that. They're giving him credit saying he is a God. He's immortal. He's not mortal. He's not a man. They're worshiping him. And he doesn't stop them. He gladly takes it in and says, worship me as God. That's fine. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God glory. Just appreciate that for a second. This is, this is not just a single action. There's lots of times in our life we don't give God glory. He could strike us down. But this is the, the categoristic uh, expression of what was his life. He lived for his own glory every moment of his life and it was fully expressed when they were calling him God and he happily took the worship. So what does God do? God sends an angel and strikes him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Eaten by worms and died is probably not an expression that in that moment worms devoured him. It was an expression used to talk about wicked people oftentimes with an awful, difficult, nasty death who died a slow or sometimes faster, miserable but painful death eaten by worms on the inside. God came and struck him in the moment of his arrogance and it seems from church history he died just a few weeks later. So, beloved, now look at verse 24. All of that's going on. Wicked men are opposing the the church. Herod's trying to rise on the throne and, and take down God's people. But guess what? In light of all that that's going on, and no matter how much people try and come against the church of Jesus Christ and God's promises, the word of the Lord. Interesting. Word of the Lord almost used as a synonym now for the church. A a the word of the Lord through the means of local churches that were being established continued to grow and be multiplied. And then 25, such an interesting comment. And Barnabas and Saul, who had went out on the relief to help the believers that were starving in, outside of uh, Judea, Samaria, outside of Jerusalem, returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was called Mark. What is he saying? Dot, dot, dot. Meanwhile, God's church is still being built, still growing. God's people are still doing their work. They're still being strengthened, no matter how many people come against the church. Well, beloved, our time's gone. Let me just leave you with this. Here's the large point of this narrative, very simply. I've said it probably five times today. God wants His people to go back to passages like Acts 12, when there's fear or concern or worry or questioning the promises of God, questioning the, the, uh, the ability of God, questioning what God's plan will be for His church, and even if Grace Emmanuel, in my intro, what if 2030 that happens? How precious would Acts 12 become to us then? These are the kind of passage we go back to when we want passages like Psalm 2 illustrated. Though nations rage, I don't know who's going to be in government next time, beloved. I don't know who's going to be elected. I don't know what liberal agenda is going to call Christians having hate speech for standing for marriage or standing against abortion or standing for what is right in society. Whatever comes against us, beloved, believe this. Acts 12 is in your Bible to encourage you that God is on the throne. Nothing will happen outside of His control. Go to that passage. Strengthen your faith. And don't ever for a moment think that some political agenda or some policy will stop the church. Nothing will stop the church. Ever. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time, this precious group. I pray their faith is strengthened. We're grateful for Acts 12. We, we will have a time, whether we admit it now or not, where a policy will be erected in this country 
that will make us wonder if we will be able to worship freely and have freedom to honor you uh, without having recourse from society. When that comes, it's passages like Acts 12 that will show us how futile it is when the nations try and stop you. And though they take our life, like Hebrews 11 says, some endured in faith by even dying at the sword and some were delivered, but both through faith honored you. And we pray we'd do that. You'd strengthen us this morning. Thanks for this group and the way they serve. I pray they'd serve the rest of Grace Emmanuel. They'd walk the halls looking for ways to minister, walk into the sanctuary looking for opportunities to serve and engage people with the truth. And they'd be benefited by your word the rest of the morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.